Welcome to the Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. We're glad to have you here. Thanks for joining in again. This week, we're covering 1 Kings 17 through 19. That's week 27 in your Come Follow Me manual. Yep, over halfway. And this is the fabulous life of Elijah. But we better go back, don't you think, and yeah. bridge this from Solomon? Yeah, right. so, so we end up with Solomon. And we have the tragedy of the splitting of the kingdoms because of the way that Solomon's family had become so materialistic and so power hungry that the northerners said, we don't want anything to do with you. And so we split. And during the reign of Solomon, he actually changed the boundaries of Israel. You know, they're going clear up the Euphrates and down to the Egyptian border. And he said, you don't have to live in your tribes. You can go anywhere you want. And so we start getting northerners living in the south, which we see with Lehi's family. Right. They're from, you know, Joseph, which was a northern tribe, but they're living down in Jerusalem and people are living in wherever they want to live. But the kingdoms are split right after Solomon. So chapters 12 through 16. So the first 11 chapters in First Kings deal with Solomon's and then 12 to 16 is this divide between these two nations. And it's just tragic. And then chapter 17, all the way through Second Kings 8 talk about the kings versus the prophets and we lose righteous kings. And so the Lord raises up righteous prophets and we have a battle between the political arm and the spiritual arm of the nation. You know, I don't know if we talked about this before, but when the first Bibles were, or this first record was written, Samuel and Kings were all one huge long book. It's not until the Septuagint, the book that was written in Greek at the time of the Greek Greco-Roman era, that they divided them into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings because of the length of the parchment. And so they chose to divide it into different scrolls or rolls. But when we get the Dead Sea Scrolls and other evidences, we find, oh, no, these were all one huge, long book of history, you know, the history of our people. But today we're diving into First Kings chapters 17 to 19. And we've already, just as a time frame, just to help you keep things straight in your mind, it's easy to remember that David is 1000 BC. So we know our Lord is going to be born about zero that the calendar was supposed to be structured all around his birth. And so David is a thousand years before the Lord's birth. And of course, Lehi is 600 years, but David reigned for 40 years. So then we get Solomon and then there's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And we keep going through these. I think there's almost 20 kings of the north and 20 kings of the south. It's actually 19, uh, but some of them only reign for a few days. And so if you count those or not, you know, you get a little bit different numbers. But in the north, we have zero zero for 19. They, none of, not one of them are righteous their whole lives long. You know, Jeroboam starts out working for the Lord, but very soon, you know, he builds, he doesn't want his people going clear down to Jerusalem to worship. And so he builds these places to worship at the two borders of his nation in Dan and Bathsheba. And he builds of all things, a golden calf. <laughs> I know it's ironic, isn't it? But he builds oh, them and okay. he tells them to worship there. And he's telling them to worship Jehovah there. I mean, they're referring to this as Jehovah, but it's just so awful. And it becomes all throughout the book of Kings, we keep reading about the sins of Jeroboam. You know, they were good, except they didn't stop the sins of Jeroboam. And that is a tragedy that steps in. But as we as we move forward, from Jeroboam, at least 100 years, probably closer to 150, we get to a wicked king Ahab and righteous prophet, dynamic, enthusiastic, exciting Elijah. Mm. 
And that's where we are. He's probably our main character for this week's Come Follow Me. Do you know what his name means in Hebrew? I don't. Jehovah is my God. And some people translate that just because Jehovah is a sacred name. The Lord is my God. It's beautiful. And we have at least seven miracles listed in chapter 17 and then a couple more in the next few of this wonderful prophet. But I guess we've got another main character that we probably should learn a little bit about, and that is Baal. He's not real. He's fictional. But I still think he's a main character that we should probably— He's the antagonist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about the antagonist. So he's, he's one of the Phoenician chief gods, and he is the god of weather. So it includes rain and thunder and lightning and including dew. And he's the Phoenician god. In fact, one of his names is the lord of rain and dew. And they say that sometimes he travels, sometimes he sleeps, he has mortal, I guess what I'm trying to say is he he looks a lot like a man in their ideas of what he does. But he lives in different places. And one place that he lived is Mount Carmel, which is where very famous place where one of Elijah's great miracles takes place. So I think it's later on that he becomes, Baal becomes the god of fertility as well. But initially, he's the weather god. And I think that's really helpful to understand. And it's also helpful to understand one of our sub-characters, Jezebel. Right. She obviously is trying to change the state religion to be the worship of Jehovah or Yahweh to the worship of Baal. And, you know, she is the princess, the king's daughter of Phoenicia. And not only does she want us to worship her father's God, but her dad's. It's interesting. The text even tells us her dad's name, and it, and it means with Baal. His name is King Eth Baal or Ethio Baal. It's written in different languages in different ways. But he was probably king over all of Phoenicia. So that's Tyre. That's right on the Mediterranean, you know, right there north of Haifa going up to Tyre and Sidon. And he, that his, her dad reigns for 50 years and it comes in right after the king of, of Hiram. But I see Jezebel not only trying to change the religion, but I see her trying, if the religion is changed, then we have to, as Israelites, we have to become subject to her father, who then is a Phoenician king, because the religion, Baal, is a Phoenician god. So if we can change the god, we then become servitude to the Phoenicians. So she's really a dangerous, powerful woman. And who's her arch enemy? Our friend Elijah. Our friend Elijah. Yep. And who is her poor husband? (laughs) (laughs) King Ahab, I tell you, he really has no ability to gain and keep a testimony of the God of his fathers, the God of Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Um, And I guess if we've had zero kings, we're going to really follow him with all of his heart from... The time so of yeah, Solomon. What, what timeline is Elijah? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm glad you went back to that. So this is about 150 years after David, about 100 years after Solomon. So it's about 850. And he reigns for a long time. Yeah. Ahab is So this on is a couple throne. hundred years before Lehi. Lehi. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But he's on the throne for 22 years. And then two of his sons reign, one for 25 and one, one for two and one for 12, excuse me. So his family reigns for a while, all the way through Second Kings chapter 3. We've got his family on the throne, which is just so ironic. You just think the Lord would have taken him out. But do you want to jump in the text now? Is that enough on yeah, the, let's, let's uh, the introduction? Text. Or do you want to talk about any themes that you saw before we jump in? I mean, there's a couple of themes. I mean, obviously, let's, let's go back to our core questions here. Oh, thank um, you. And we can, uh, I'll put the context of the themes I saw in my reading. But, you know, how does this bring me closer to Christ? 
That's an easy one in this one. Uh, how does the bookworm help me understand the Old Testament? I found a lot here, actually. Yeah, me too. Um, and then how does this help me live a more Christ-like life? You know, the ability to liken these things, and we can cover those as we go. Yeah. Thematically, and, and again, we'll dive into this in more detail, but I see a lot of sort of the John the Baptist, Christ's parallels with Elijah. With, yeah, with Elijah, absolutely. Because John the Baptist even dresses like him, doesn't That's it? Right. It says he wears a leather yeah. girdle. And, ah. I absolutely see Elijah as preparing the way for Christ. He's setting this type of Christ. You know, you mentioned Baal's the God of weather. One of the miracles of Christ, of course, calming the sea and control over the weather is like, you know, they're comparing him to Elijah. It's like he's he can do these things too, right? Yeah, and do you remember people even come up to him and say, "Are you, are you Elijah?" Elijah? Except, yeah. except in, it's tricky because in the King James they use the Greek word Elisha, Elisa, Elias. Are you the Elias that's to come? But it's really in Hebrew, Elijah. So, Elijah. so yeah, absolutely see these very strong parallels of the Lord setting up Christ for people who are descendants yeah. and, and understand And it's Elijah. not just Christ. I'm glad you mentioned that because tying him to the New Testament, because then I realized Elijah is mentioned in all four of our canons. Obviously here in the Old Testament, we just talked about the New Testament. In the Book of Mormon, Christ in Third Nephi says, you guys need Malachi chapter four. And he says, Elijah is going to come back and he's going to prepare the way for the second coming of our Savior, again, being one who is like John the Baptist, prepare the way for their Savior. And then, do you remember in the Doctrine and Covenants, when Moroni comes, he quotes that Elijah is going to come. And then, of course, Elijah does come in section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants, um, at the second day of the unleavened bread, the day right after the Passover, right when the Jews are expecting him, and right on the anniversary of our Savior being in the spirit world, organizing missionary work, that then Elijah's sealing keys can implement. I mean, the ties there are fabulous. Elijah really is a man for all seasons here, isn't he? Okay, let's dive into the text into then. The text, chapter 17. Chapter 17. Where do you want to start? This poor widow? I, first There's sentence, a famine Elijah seeing the, the heavens? Well, I have a question here. Elijah the Tishbite. What is a Tishbite? It's where he's from. It's the location. Um, so sort of like Jesus of Nazareth, maybe. And... It's in Gilead, which is over on the other side of Jordan. But at the, at the time of, of Solomon and David, that was all part of Israel. Now we would call it Syria. But then it was part of their land. And he's from over there. And we are learning right from the beginning that it's wicked King Ahab. And he's so mad at Ahab for worshiping Baal. that He says, if you think Baal can change the weather, if you think this is the God of weather, let's make sure there's not only rain for three years, zero, zip, no, not a single drop of rain, but also no dew. So my son-in-law and I did some math. We looked up how much dew falls in this area, in the northern tribes, and the average from a three-year period that some scientists have done some starting, some preliminary work here, was three inches a year of dew. It would be the equivalent of three inches of rain, three inches of water a year in just dew. So by stopping the dew, you are really going to starve those trees that can, and those plants that can absorb the dew through their leaves and still feed their, their soil. I also don't know how they're getting their rain because I mean, their water to drink and survive because, well, I guess you could still go over to the, or like the Sea of Galilee or something and get something. Some springs may have continued, but 
a cistern isn't going to hold a three-year supply of, of water. This is just really... And some texts say that it's three and a half years that I think is significant because that's, again, foreshadowing in the book of Revelation, how many days and before the Savior comes and how many years and things. It's always three and a half, three and a half. And three, of course, is how many days the Lord's in the tomb. Um, you know, it's a time of death. And so here in Israel, we have this time of death and if we just saw it once, it would be one thing, but this number is used as a time of death repeatedly over and over again. So I, I think it's significant, but he seals the heavens. He's got the sealing power. And he says in verse one, there shall not be rain or dew these three years, according to my word and the word of the Lord. So everybody gets thirsty and he leaves and he goes out of the area. In fact, it says he goes to Zidon. Sidon, if it is the same as Sidon, which I think it is, at least most commentaries and biblical scholars who study the Hebrew really, really thoroughly think it is a town in Phoenicia, if you can believe it. Okay. It is under the reign of Jezebel's dad, and he is hiding under Jezebel's dad's thumb, and nobody knows it. I mean, isn't that ironic? I mean, it just fits in with his personality. He goes to the place where he is most wanted, and he just and hides out there. Hides out there. And this wonderful widow has so much faith. Can you believe it? She is allowed, you know, feeds him before feeding herself. I, I just can hardly believe when I read this story that the prophet would even ask her, give to me first, feed me. And she says, you know, I've only got, this is verse nine. I, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. You know, we've had a lot of people asking for women to give them a little water in vessels, whether it was Abraham's servant and then Jacob and, of course, our Savior at the woman at the well as well. You know, we I see. see this parallel. Yeah, the woman at the well is a fantastic one. I'm, you know, what popped in my mind is how is what the prophet's asking and in those circumstances, right? So he can get fed by ravens, right? That's just a couple of verses before. But he shows up and he asks her for this. You know, I don't think he actually needs it. Well, he does, but but, but he God shows up could, asking. could create the miracle anyway. So why is he asking? Why is he asking? I think the Lord is more worried about our faith than he is our bread. I think so too. That that was the lesson I took away from that. It's like I, I absolutely see this this moment where the Lord is with Elijah and he's like, "This is what I want you to do." Yeah, to do it this way, she has to exert all of her faith, and it's interesting that she obviously believes that he's a man of God or she would not be willing to house him in her house. And yet, had her faith been tried to this degree, had she been stretched? I love this in times when I'm being stretched to remind myself, stretching helps you build spiritual muscles. You know, when your faith is is torn and when it is in a place where the Lord is really giving you a difficult situation, remind yourself of this fabulous widow of Zidon who is going to now feed the Lord's anointed for a long time and the cruise of oil and yeah. the little bit of flour is enough. She says to feed her household. I don't know if you caught it's more that. more than two, yeah. I, but I, I assumed it was more than just her son with that. And I, I was so happy to hear that, that it reminds me of the feeding of the 5,000. You know, the Lord is going to provide. He can make food anyway. And just like you said, they're great types of Christ, aren't they? Yeah, not so subtle on <laughs> some of these, right? Yeah, but the child, as we know, dies somehow. This is all in chapter 17. This She takes him up to the loft, and Elijah is able to raise the dead. 
And it's interesting that both Elijah and Elisha raise the dead. Our Savior has multiple counts of raising the dead. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, I think there's even another one. And these are just some of his miracles. It always says, you know, he does so many more. But I think we can learn from the book of Hosea that the lives of the prophet are to typify of the Savior. And one reason why they're given these gifts is so that people will recognize our Savior for who he is, that these are servants of God, and that's why they're given these gifts. It's just beautiful that he comes back. And sometimes prayers are answered and sometimes they aren't. But this time, it's a beautiful. See, the sun liveth. This is verse 23. I love it. Anything else you wanted to bring yeah, up on that? Yeah, there's a couple things. Chapter? I mean, I love love this chapter for the miracle. But for me, it gives me a guide, right? So because the widow, I mean, the prophet shows up, it's like, feed me first. And the widow, of course, like, you know, I'm, I'm planning to just make this last thing and then and then die. But yeah. let's let's do this. She just has complete acceptance of the consequences, whatever they may be. I mean, in her mind, like, if I feed the prophet, you know. So I, be it. So I would rather it. die. I would rather have the prophet live and I die. Is, yeah, is so be it. I mean, that, that thing is where our heart is. The worst is. thing that could happen is that I die one day earlier or right, something. Right, And so for me, that is absolutely what I've had to do when I've had these moments of faith. It's super scary. And he addressed that. He knows it's scary because he says, fear not, right? That That is absolutely, in Elijah 13, and Elijah said to her, fear not, and go do as thou hast said. So for me, this is a guide that has absolutely has been recurring in my life when I've had to do scary things. Fear not. I have yeah. overcome the world. Or yeah. be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Or yeah, do yeah. the thing. Just she, she increase your faith. Rely yeah. on the Lord. Yeah. Rely on the Lord. And she Whatever does happens, it. happens. And the here she is living in Phoenicia. I mean, the most ironic of all places to be hiding out. But he goes there to hide. And we learn later that Ahab has been searching for him for the whole three years. He's been going to everybody. He, he sends out his servant. His name is Obadiah. We learn in chapter 18. And Obadiah has been on the hunt for him for a long time. And he just has been completely saved. But the crazy thing is that Obadiah is Ahab's servant, but Obadiah believes in Jehovah. And Obadiah has actually, did you catch this in chapter 18, verse 3 and 4? He has been in charge, they call him the governor for Ahab, of saving a hundred prophets or sons of the prophets, you know, these believers, these disciples, I call them, I, I look at them like, you know, the 70 or the 12 or something, these sons of the prophet who are following him around and helping him and building the best they can to build truth and call repentance. But Obadiah has been putting them in caves and hiding them from Ahab and Jezebel and feeding them. Right. It's uh, underground so here, railroad. Here so ironic. <laughs> I mean, we've got a couple of really ironic things going on. Underneath Ahab's nose, his chief servant is feeding the Lord's disciples, and the prophet of the Lord is sitting under the king of Phoenicia's nose. And, um, well, that's sort of a rude way of saying it. I'm sorry for using So we have this incredible faith in Phoenicia, right? With Obadiah and with the widow. Well, I think Obadiah is living with Ahab. He's Ahab's governor, according to First Kings chapter go. 18. Yeah, he's Ahab's right-hand man. And But this is so great because um, just, just keep reading the next verse there, five through seven, you know, Ahab right. and they're working together. But Elijah shows up and do you want to look at, I guess this is verses about 17 to 16, where Obadiah 18, says, right? oh, hi, nice to see you. Would you please go tell your master Ahab that I'm here and I'd, and I'd like to meet with him today? 
<laughs> and then poor Obadiah goes ballistic. Are you kidding? I've been looking for you for three years. Are you just wanting me to be killed? Because if I tell him you're going to be here, you're probably going to just disappear again and go someplace else. And it, it sounds like he has an amazing gift from the Lord to be able to move from place to place without being seen. But Elijah promises, I guess, and look at verse 17 and 18. Do you, do you want to read those? Sure. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Isn't that one of That's the most ironic? ironic? <laughs> I mean, as I said, this whole thing is just written with so much, you know, the reader is just laughing. What you trouble? Know. Yeah. Excuse me, um, Ahab, who are you to point the finger at? This is when the Lord says, why don't you look at the beam in your own eye before is you look at the moat? Is he referring to uh, cursing the weather? Yeah, because he knows that they're in total starvation mode. Uh, all because it's Elijah's fault. But Elijah is working under the power of God. And it's to show that Baal has no power. And they just don't connect the dots. He doesn't see it. His heart is so hardened. I see the same irony in, in you know, what people did in the Savior's time and even the Book of Mormon. They acknowledge that he has the power and find fault in him for it. You know? Oh, that's right. It's so odd. You know, you healed. Yes, you healed, but it was on the Sabbath. So we're going to stand here, right? <laughs> Or, yes, Joseph Smith brought forth this book, but, or yes, this person was healed, but, yes, but. So odd. Yeah. Yeah. They do not soften their hearts. They do not have eyes to see. And then I love Elijah's response. And I hope there was plenty of arm movements and and loud volume on the voice on this one. Right, Keep 18. Going. And yeah. he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. And the house followed Balaam. And he says, I love, keep going down, 19, 20, 21. How long halt ye between two opinions? You know, and he says, we're going to have a duel. We're going to have a bash out. And we know that there's 450 priests of Baal that have been eating food. How do you eat food at the queen's table at a time of famine? 450 plus her own, because he has other wives, but she's the queen. And then it also says that there are 400 priests of the grove. Now, that those refer to another Phoenician god named Ashereth. And so there are possibly 850 false priests who are eating, who Ahab is, is feeding every day. I mean, it's just mind-boggling. But whatever it is, he says, let's go up to Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel is one of the places where they thought that Baal had a residence and lived there. So he says, okay, if he lives there, let's go up and see if he's there. Let's go up. Let's go to where you think your God lives and let's see if your God shows up. It's it's really a great, great setting. Do you want to tell the story? <laughs> I think it's pretty bombastic, I guess. Is <laughs> right? Theatrical. Theatrical. He's is making great... sure everybody understands. And it sounds like a lot of people are there. So we've got at least these 450. He has a flair for the dramatic, for sure. Yeah. But I think that we've got more followers of Jehovah there because otherwise they would have outnumbered them before they're all killed. So I think we've got over a thousand people there, if not 2000 or something like this that have gathered up there. Yeah, I, I think, think it's, it's a large crowd. I love this thought of like, you know, how long haul you between two opinions. It shows the conflict. It shows the sort of, I mean, this is repeated again and again in the scriptures. And I think this is a theme in our personal lives of, you know, God and mammon can't serve two masters, et cetera, this, this theme. And I think he's really forcing them. It's like, okay, you know, you're blaming me for halting the weather. Maybe it's ball, but like, let's find out. Let's just, right now. Uh, yeah, right now. We're going to find out. We're going to duke it out. And here's two. Let's make two altars. You make yours. I'll make mine. Here's two oxen. You take yours. I'll take mine. 
And it sounds like they start right in the early morning. And these priests of Baal do everything, Baal, do everything to try to keep. And Elijah just plays on what they know about him. Oh, maybe he's sleeping. Peradventure, he's traveling. You know, they just goes on and on and on. He's totally poking fun of what they believe he should be able to do. If he's the god of, of the weather, why hasn't he done anything about the weather in the last three years? And, of course, they cut themselves. They do all sorts of mutilating, awful things. And finally, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, down to verse 16, Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. You've had the last eight hours or so. I don't know exactly how long, what time they started, but it said, you know, first thing in the, in the morning until the hour of evening sacrifice. And the evening sacrifice is the same time that at the temple they light the evening incense and that is at 3 p.m. So you light the morning one right before sunrise, and then you do this one at 3 p.m. so that there's always the smoke and incense going up to represent the prayers of the Lord. And it's just beautiful. of the temple imagery that comes now on the top of a mountain. We're, at, we're on a mountain, so we're in a temple lookalike, and we're offering sacrifices, which is what they did at the temple, and we are calling upon God, which is what we do in the temple. So we have a beautiful temple imagery here, except, you know, when you mentioned the dramatic, what does Elijah ask for? You know, these barrels and barrels of water, where are they getting the water at a time of famine and no rain? And anyway, the barrels and barrels, even digs a ditch around the altar and has them fill the ditch. And they've also got to carry the water up the hill. Right. Now, he maybe there was a no good well. He wanted to leave no doubt. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, it is such a fabulous story. I just feel like this is one of the best of the best. Right, 34, do it again. Do it the second time. Yeah. Right? Third time. And then, and maybe it's all from this little brook, Krishan. Uh, I hope so. I hope so. But I was wondering if they had to go clear to the Mediterranean Sea. But in verse 40, it says there's a, a brook there, and they're going to take them all down there and kill them in that brook. So maybe that's where they're getting the water. But the bottom line is, God is often seen in fire and clouds. And that goes right back to Moses, and it goes right to the dedication of the Solomon's temple, which was done in righteousness, Moses's tabernacle in righteousness, and the Kirtland temple, which was done in righteousness. And great pillars of fire and clouds came to all three. And of course, the Lord's presence was seen in the Exodus. And that's what happens here. A pillar of fire comes down from heaven and we see the Lord's power and might. Oh, it's also going to be at the second coming, isn't it? Right. That's in the Doctrine and Covenants. He's going to come as a power, as a pillar of fire. And he will come in a time when in the clouds of heaven. So that's interesting. He's often associated with those. And so here he is again, coming down in such a dramatic fashion. But does it convert anybody? Yeah. They all say, we're going to obey. We're going to obey. We're going to bow down and, and, and obey. Do, should we read those verses Oh, Lord, hear me. That's verse 37. That's his prayer. And then he continues on. And the people saw and fell on their faces. This is verse 39. Right. And they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Do you remember I said that was the name of Elijah? Jehovah is my God or Lord is my God. And he's saying this here. So that's just amazing. But I love also the fact that Elijah says, be it known this day that thou art God and that I am thy servant. You know, let them know that they need to follow my direction because I'm trying to do it your way and they don't believe me. Could you please make sure that's clear? And verse 37 says that the people will know that you are the Lord God. You know, this is all to testify and to witness. And you ought to read verse 38 too, John. It's such sure. a great verse. Want to read it now? Oh, yeah. 
Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Isn't that a great image of the tongues of burning fire licking up that water in the trench? Oh, just powerful. But um, the people really are not not converted, but they do at long term, but they are short term. So they seize the prophets. That's verse 40. And Elijah says, don't let a single one escape. And they are killed down at this little brook. But does this leave us with a vengeful God? I mean, what do you what do you think about I this? I see some very strong parallels to the Lord's treatment of Israel when they're leaving Egypt. And he's trying to get them to forget their false gods, mm, right? Yes. This is another false god, right? And so the dramatics happen there, too, with the plagues and the partying yeah, and yeah, so you're on. Right. Yeah, we see a lot of parallels yeah, between these two prophets. It's the, tool, the right tool for the right people. And, and I don't think it's, I think it's God's them. trying to teach. I mean, he's, he's the master teacher more than he is the Superman. He's not vengeful. He's trying to—we're so blessed to have Moses 139. All of his work, all of his glory is for our good. It's to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life of man. And so if we are going to look at this story as God is vengeful, we are missing the whole point that by killing these wicked prophets, they will have an opportunity to learn in the next life without all the blinders of wicked queen Jezebel and the Baal worship. They they can have a clean slate. They can see things differently and they'll have another chance to learn the truth. And also the next generation born up will not be so heavily, you know, overcome by the social problems of the day that we're leaning so heavily towards Baal. But I just love the next interaction. It sounds like Jezebel is not there because Elijah just goes to Ahab. This is verse 41. Go eat and drink because there's going to be the sound of heavy rain. And then, you know, Elijah sends his servant back up to the top of the mountain and says, because they're down now at the brook. And so he says, go back up to the top and look and look toward the sea. You know, when you're at the top of the mountain on a clear day, you can see the Mediterranean from up there. And I've done it many times. And he says, look for that little cloud and nothing comes. The seventh time, this is finally verse 44. There's a cloud as small as a man's hand rising from the sea. And that's when Elijah says, okay, go tell Ahab. And he, and he doesn't go himself. He's still having a servant go. Prepare your chariot and get down before the rain stops you. That's such a bold statement. It hasn't rained in three years. Yep. Right? Yep. He sees get this your chariot, tiny little don't cloud. Don't let the rain stop you. Yeah, don't <laughs> let it stop you. But you know what happens? You know, it says in verse 45, the sky grows dark, the clouds and the wind and the heavy rain begin to fall. And Ahab, Ahab rode away and went to Jezreel where he was, his palace is. I just really love verse 46 too. Elijah's tucking in his cloak into his belt so he can run faster. You know, these long sweeping garments are a pain to run in. And he runs so fast that he runs ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. So down the mountain is about a 10K. So our wonderful prophet is in phenomenal shape. He beats the chariot. <laughs> you know, I just love it. And I don't know if, if the Lord was giving him extra speed, if this is another miracle. I didn't count this as a miracle, but maybe it should have been. Oh, I just am so grateful that the Lord answers this prayer. And Elijah's joy is so great now that I think it sets him up for almost more disappointment the next day when Ahab agrees with his wife instead of with God and says, when Jezebel says, okay, I just heard what you did to my people. I'm going to kill you tomorrow. And I just see this crash coming from this ecstatic joy. There's rain. 
And yet he's just shattered when Ahab... Feels the judgment, I think. Ahab does not follow the Lord. Yet this this marvelous sign of God did not convert the king nor the queen. And it's just tragic. I guess that's chapter 19, isn't it? And he's so sad that he just starts sleeping and uh, the angel comes and feeds him twice. Yeah, I love I love this little sequence here of... He first has to go hide, right? He goes right. to Beersheba. So he goes south. He goes quite a ways south. He leaves, actually, the nation of Israel. He's now down south in southern Judah. And... Well, in verse, verse four, yeah. But he himself went a day's journey to the wilderness, which you just said, came down and sat under a juniper tree and he requested himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now. Now, O Lord, take away my life. I am not better than my father's. I have tried and tried and tried. And then in verse 5, an angel touched him. And he said, arise and eat. And I believe the angels come to us when we are low. That the, The ministering of angels is such a real blessing in all of our lives. I believe that every person who seeks them and lives for them will receive them. And I love President Holland's reminder, or Elder Holland's reminder, that some angels are mortal and some are immortal. <laughs> you know, that, the kind that are mortal are also God's servants. And may we also serve God as angels in behalf of other people as we minister to them. Imagine just doing this miracle. There was no doubt, right? Doused it three times with water, gave the priest the ball all day to do Doesn't anything that they wanted. Right? But it's interesting. The Prophesied the, of the rain. Yeah, but where does the Lord take him when he's trying to cheer him up and get him back on his feet? The place uh, of the temple. Yeah. He greets him. The so the angel feeds him. He has miraculous food. He's able to go for 40 days all the way down. And I did the math just in case Sinai is where some people think it is, which we don't know where Sinai is. But just in case it's down there in the, in the Sinai Peninsula, almost to the bottom, just in case it's there, it's about nine miles a day if we, it was 40 days. But I presume it's just a number for purification. I don't think it's literal. But the bottom line is the Lord takes him back to where Moses entered into the presence of the Lord. He takes him back to a temple setting. He's in a low place, and he says, I want you to return to your covenants. I want you to return to the place where I covenanted with Moses that I would take care of this people. Let's go back and talk about my law, and I'm going to restore you. I'm going to give you some assignments. I want you to call your replacement. I'm not going to let you die until Elisha is anointed. I want you to call two more kings. These kings are going to come down, and they're going to take out all the sons of Ahab, the 70 sons of Ahab and everybody else. So I really appreciate that. And also it's interesting when I was reading this chapter 19 to see there's portions of it that are written chiastically. There's a lot of beautiful poetry in here. And so you can see that center point. I have been jealous. This is verse 10. I have been very jealous for the Lord of hosts. You know, he's, he's been a she-bear for him almost. You know, the children of Israel have forsaken their covenants. But let's talk about this strong wind, because this is the center of the chiasmus here in verse 11. So the Lord wants to teach him a lesson, and he's going to teach him that it's not the bringing down fire from heaven. It's not the earthquake. It's not the breaking into pieces. You know, I love, have you ever listened to Mendelssohn's Elijah? He yeah. wrote an oratory on yeah. this, isn't it? Have you sung in it? No. Oh, it's gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've sung it a couple of times. It's really powerful. Maybe we should listen to it this week while we're studying it in our scriptures and get the music in our head like we have the Messiah in our head. But do you want to read verse 12? Sure. And after the quake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it, that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out. You know, 
The Lord is teaching all of us. And this fabulous prophet who has the sealing power, who's so well known in every dispensation since his translation, the time that he was translated, and yet the Lord taught him. It's not in the pyrotechnics. I it's love in this still small in voice. contrast to the chapter before. Oh, yeah. Because we, we so often hear this, verses 11 and 12. In but not in context, yeah. yeah. But this idea, you know, this buildup, this three years of famine, all of these things, the boldness to even approach Ahab directly, and then setting up this very clear, I guess you could call it an experiment, or demonstration of power, which was really unusual, you know, sign-seeking, right, effectively. Yeah. And the Lord teaches Elijah, it's not in the fire, right? It's in the voice of the Lord. And he can then teach that to the school of the prophets because the Lord says there are still those who believe. And the Lord knew the number. Now, it appears to me that it's a symbolic number because he says in verse 18, yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed unto Baal. So we get this figure that the Lord says, I know there is a group. And if seven is whole and thousand is their largest number, then we're looking at a figurative number. It's always thousands or hundreds of thousands or thousands of thousands, but they don't have the word million. You know, it's always thousand, tens of thousands, whatever they use, it's always thousands. So if this is just using the symbolic symbols of those numbers, the Lord still says, no, there are many. There are many here. I still need prophets in the land. You still have some preaching to do. You've got work to do. Get up. We've been up in Sinai. You've been back to the temple setting. I've filled you with food spiritually, and it's time to get back to work. Yeah. And that's what he does. Teach the word. And so he calls, verse 21 to 22, the Lord calls Elisha to start serving him. It's interesting that Elisha is plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. This is a very symbolic number. If he's going to be called to the prophet of the tribes of Israel, we've got 12 here, and it says 12 yoke. I don't know if that means doubled, but a number doubled is perfected. So I think it's all many levels. You know, Scripture has many levels of interpretation, but I think we can look at this allegorically, and we see that God is going to take care of everyone through his prophets, that if we can just listen to our prophet and obey with exactness, God's voice will be heard and God's blessings can be showered out upon us. And he has a sacrifice. Elijah says, oh, don't worry about it. Elijah's always saying that to him. Oh, don't worry about it, you know. <laughs> and Elijah just sticks with him like glue. You know, they have this huge feast. I also think it's symbolic and allegorical that Elisha feeds the whole community because he's feeding them physically now. It sounds like he's a wealthy man, if he, or perhaps his dad was wealthy, whatever. He's got all these oxen that he's taking care of, and he slays two of them and feeds everybody. And then he will now go and spiritually feed us. As we are, every time we open the scriptures, we can find spiritual nourishment. And I really hope that by listening to podcasts and, and following through, we can become more spiritually nourished and yeah. come to our Savior and listen more fully to the cry of repentance. Yeah, we'll learn more about Elisha's adventures in Second Kings. Next week, yeah. yeah, it's great. I'll see you then. Thank Thanks. Bye-bye.